Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to a Democracy Sausage Extra. In this week's episode, you may have noticed there was one issue we didn't cover, and that was Brexit. And that's because I wanted to talk to Rob Mainwaring, who's a scholar from Flinders University and someone who's uh, followed British politics closely. Rob, welcome back to The Hot Plate for Democracy Sausage Extra. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me back Perhaps on the we show. should call it a second serving, just to strain an already hackneyed uh, pun. Um, let, let's go to this whole issue of Brexit because Britain really, you know, we had all three and a half years of, of torture over this issue and, and uh, parliamentary gridlock and everything else. The divisions have been absolutely epic. But on the 31st of January, officially, Britain is out of Europe. Boris got Brexit done, or at least that's what he tells us. Is that the end of the story? Uh, no, of course not. And it's, um, it is an extraordinary uh, story. I, want, I mean, one thing we should just really recognise is that this is a certainly a momentous occasion in uh, British uh, kind of uh, political history. Uh, this is a key moment. Um, you know, Britain entered the European economic uh, uh, community in the 1970s. They've been a long-standing, difficult member, and that relationship has formally ended. So Britain now is out of the European Union. It is a rule taker. Uh, so it has, in one sense, no institutional clout within the uh, mechanisms of the European Union, and it operates like as a player like Canada and Australia. So it is mechanism. But to answer your question, is Brexit done? No, by far, by certainly by no means at all. Um, we have uh, a, an agreement. Britain is, is kind of formally out, but we have now basically a transition year. So as part of the withdrawal agreement, basically until the end of 2020, uh, there are transition arrangements in place, but the really hard work begins now. And uh, in one sense, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson faces a whole series of challenges uh, internally and externally to sort of complete this process. Hmm. You said that um, Britain is now a rule taker. I mean, it, it 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 strikes me that the metaphor is is like you know they've left the caravan park, but they still probably have to pay for the upkeep of the shower block and so forth. I mean they're they're not um, going to have you know total separation until they've either negotiated a new deal or left without one, really, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And so by the end of the year, that will be the kind of clear uh, the kind of clear part of it. And of course, part of it is actually the sort of financial settlement. So there's an interesting kind of question here about what's called the divorce bill. 
So when that transition agreement is over and Britain has left the European Union, basically how much money uh, will it need to uh, pay uh, to the European Union? So most of the reports have that amount, somewhere between 30 to 32 uh, billion pounds that the uh, Britain will have to pay as part of its divorce settlement to leave the European Union. But if there's still not agreement on certain trade areas, then in one sense, uh, Britain will be contributing to the EU budget, um, certainly beyond in 2021, and maybe even beyond that, depending on how long it takes to organise some of these kind of trade negotiations. So there's, a, there's this kind of ongoing financial relationship as well, which is yet to be resolved. Yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely staggering amount of money, and uh, one wonders whether the ordinary British voter, particularly back in 2017, really understood uh, understood that. Um but uh, it's it's if it took so long just to leave, then it strikes me that it's pretty ambitious to imagine that you could put in place anything approximating replacement arrangements on a permanent basis between now and the end of this year. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's two. I mean, there's two sort of dimensions. One is, I think now there's going to be a year ahead of complex trade negotiations, and we could probably just say something a little bit about some of the starting positions. But I think. I think to your earlier kind of comment, there's a, there's a kind of view here about what the British people want or think will happen. Um, and if we, mm. if we think about Brexit in those terms, then actually it's much more of a cultural than a kind of a political phenomenon in a way, in the sense that I think you're right, is that most uh, British people have very low levels of, of knowledge about how the EU operates, uh, its institutional structure, or indeed its impact. So, there was a lot of um, well, teasing, particularly of Brexiteers, to say, well, can you name some of the key benefits that have happened since we've left the European Union? And, uh, and some some of the, uh, the people who supported Brexit were, you know, very vague in, in what they thought they've won. But, but it, this, in one sense, misses the point, because for these people, particularly who voted to leave the European Union, this was about a cultural battle and about a national identity. So they will or might well struggle to know how much Britain pays into the European Union or what the kind of uh, the real or actual uh, pros and cons and benefits will be. But actually, in terms of a sense of identity and perceived freedom, then that it's a kind of cultural, uh, there's definitely, it, it's a kind of cultural battleground rather than necessarily one about knowing what the systematic kind of gains and losses will be. Is there a very psychological aspect to this? I mean, I suppose that's what you're talking about, really, when you use that term cultural. But uh, there was a lot of flag waving going on. I imagine you saw those scenes of uh, the delegation in the European Parliament uh, singing "Old Lang Syne" and 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 uh, waving flags. And you know, there was um, there was some bitter comments made and some very warm comments made as well uh, in relation to you know the links between. Britain and the continent, continental Europe, the European Union and so forth. But from Britain's point of view, uh, there's this – obviously there's this yearning to to be taken seriously, to stand uh, as Britain, stand alone, uh, you know, plucky little Britain, all that sort of stuff. Um, is that – is that how you see it? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, I think there's this kind of there's kind of a couple of questions here. One is about kind of Britain's role as a kind of foreign power and what that what that means and what they're seeking to achieve. And then this kind of related question to me about British nationalism and national identity. Hmm. And I mean, one of the one of the the worst things about Brexit and this whole debacle is that has there been a sort of spike in forms of ethnic nationalism rather than what we would call civic nationalism. So in the kind of academic literature, we tend to think about nationalism. Uh, in two different ways. One is about ethnic 
uh, nationalism about identity based on kind of race, culture, and creed. And civic nationalism is more about the identity we build through our, our kind of political institutions and how we come together. And we tend to see civic nationalism in sort of more progressive terms. So ethnic nationalism, in one sense, is seems to be slightly more resurgent in Britain, and that's having quite negative consequences. So after the referendum result, there was a clear increase in reported of racist incidents within the UK. And again, following the leaving date of Brexit, there's also been reported there was quite a high-profile case of a um, of, of a of a, flat, of a series of flats in Norfolk where someone had put up posters saying, "Well, now you have to speak the Queen's English, and anyone who doesn't speak the Queen's English should go back to where they come from." So, one of the the really worrying things about this whole debacle, really is how um, how the government and the country manages this kind of spike in kind of ethnic nationalism, particularly in England, and how that kind of plays out. The wider question I think you pointed to is about Britain as a foreign power. And Britain, in one sense, ever since uh, you know the Second World War, is, is having some sort of existential crisis about what kind of global player it can be. Uh, someone like Tony Blair, who was a very um, pro-European, saw... Britain playing a strong role within the European Union for strategic reasons to, you know, counterbalance and, uh, its relationship with the US and, and of course, China, India and other countries. So, so for someone like Blair, being part of the EU was a very strong part of how Britain reforges its, its kind of, its role on the global stage. Clearly, that's a view that, that will not take place now. And, and so Johnson, in one sense, will have to find a new way for Britain as a small, uh, mid-power to, to, in one sense, exert some influence it can do. And the difficulty would be, and what critics would say, is that now it's outside of the European Union, it probably has less, less leverage and power um, as a result. Um, so again, there's, a, there's so much remains unresolved and unclear about the future. And this is just another example of where we don't really know what it's going to mean for British politics or Britain on the global stage. Yeah, it's really interesting that point you make about uh, Britain's conception of itself. Uh, I haven't really thought about this before, but do you think there was, a, in a sense, its um, dissatisfaction? I think we could say that there was enough dissatisfaction for this, you know, to get up in the referendum and eventually to prevail after all of the all of the convulsions and everything else. But you know, they've eventually got to this point. I'm wondering to what extent the fact that they were a little bit half-hearted about their membership of Europe all the way through added to their inability to really articulate that idea of Britain as a very powerful, influential player in Europe. I mean, Germany is obviously seen, Germany and France, but Germany in particular, I guess, as you know, the, the real powerhouses of, of Europe. Um, Britain, on the other hand, maintained its own currency and and main, you know maintained its own um, you know a, a very strong sort of antagonistic relationship, I guess, with with Europe all the way through. One wonders whether they literally didn't give it a chance from the beginning. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a really good uh, kind of observation and a difficulty because it also raises the question about what happens to the European Union now that kind of Britain's kind of left it. And I think, I think that's right to say is Britain at best has had a, has had a very difficult and troublesome relationship with the European Union. And for some who want to see a kind of much more supranational federal Europe, in one sense, having Britain leave uh, might well be more beneficial because that difficult, um, you know, relative now is kind of been has been cut out of the kind of family. So it would be it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of regroups. And I think 
to sum overall most of the, the kind of commentary by Ursula van der Leyen, uh, the European Commissioner, Donald Tusk, the, uh, the former uh, president of the European Union, was, were, were, uh, have been very warm and they say, well, we're sad to see you go. But there will be a, an element of not relief necessarily, but um, some of those um, the difficulties that, uh, that uh, Britain, uh, the UK had 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 put towards European, they'll certainly be uh, relieved to, to not have to deal with them. And also, you know, on one level, I think some of the uh, the show, the grandstanding that the Brexit MPs did in the European Parliament, you know, most of the Europeans uh, will be really glad to see uh, the back of that. But the, yeah, well, some of that was pretty gauche, wasn't it? Pretty, well, uh, uh, that's stuff. right. And I, th- I, th- I feel like, you know, for the Brexit and what was formerly the UK Independence Party, I mean, it's, it's an incredible result, really, because over a period of about... 20 years when they first contested a by-election and won 600 uh, odd, odd votes in its first ever first ever kind of election seats to you know achieving significant uh, number of seats in the European kind of Parliament. I mean, Nigel Farage, of course, is a serial failed politician in what says he's. I think he contested at least uh, five or six uh, uh, British constituency seats and didn't win a single one. So he's, but. But they've achieved their kind of goal, so it's a it's a remarkable achievement. Of course, they were they want to be incre- they were incredibly um, uh, very loud and uh, about what they see as, as the, the the win that they've achieved. Um, but again, it it kind of raises these these kind of open questions about how uh, Britain recalibrates. And I think a political problem for Boris Johnson is how does he, in one sense, keep uh, the support of some of the hard Brexiteers whilst actually trying to uh, enable a meaningful relationship. And there will be trade-offs between that relationship. And there's only a certain extent to which, um, you know, he can he can play to the two lines as, as in seeking, you know, strong access to the single market as an outside player, but also trying to appease these hardliners. So even though the Brexit party will disappear, um, the hard right of the Conservative Party won't, and there's, they, they still will be looking for hardline responses in in this kind of transition period. And that, again, remains you know, a very difficult kind of set of political dilemmas and problems for, for Boris Johnson. Boris, is, uh, Boris Johnson is a, a sort of a, an eccentric figure in his own way. There's something sort of quintessentially oddball and British about him, or English about him, I suppose you might say. Um, did it take that kind of character in the end to you know, sort of tie all this together to eventually articulate what it was that Britons were trying to do here. And, you know, he's finally delivered it. He's got obviously a lot of authority that uh, previously. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Leaders have lacked in this regard. Do you think his character was a, was a factor in that? That's a, that's a hard one to kind of read. It's hard to show kind of clear evidence for it. I mean, you, you'd have to see the whole thing generally speaking, as a kind of process and also a process of kind of failed and weak leadership. I mean, for my money, I think a lot of the kind of blame for, for the mishandling of this goes back to David Cameron 
and his handling of the what was then growing Euroscepticism, but it goes back even longer than that in one sense between the Thatcher and Major mm. years for the Conservative Party. Theresa May was particularly uh, wooden in her dealings and particularly stubborn and intransigent in some ways, which proved incredibly unhelpful to sell that message. And I think that whilst Johnson has come in and um, convincingly uh, certainly won the election, but then in part gifted by having an extremely unpopular Labour leader in Jeremy Corbyn, who he trounced, yeah. the, the, the fact that Brexit is done, uh, or at least that slogan worked, it means that yes, uh, Johnson's got to uh, got to the exit. But I mean, as we've already kind of just said and, and indicated, actually the work is far from over. So there are a whole series of issues around uh, the Irish border, around fishing, around financial services, around the future institutional framework, and none of these have been uh, arranged uh, or sorted out yet. And so, so in one sense, it's it's way too. Um, early to in one sense put any real kind of verdict on, on how Johnson has handled this kind of relationship he's he's achieved his first milestone and marker but arguably that was the lowest of all the hanging fruit mm. it's interesting though the way uh, politics it seems in recent times is is become increasingly beholden to these reductive and very simple ideas the sort of marvelous minimalism of get Brexit done or take back control, the original slogan for the uh, the Leave campaign in the referendum. Indeed, jobs and growth here in Australia, uh, which was, you know, what Scott Morrison used to to uh, sort of, I guess, reduce everything down to a, you know, very simple idea. And some of those uh, people who worked in, in um, the Australian campaign here, the Australian Conservative campaign, worked on Boris Johnson's campaign as well. So this reduction of all of this complexity, the sort of complexity you're just talking about, that comes now in terms of uh, actually trying to give expression to the vote, all of that is kind of, in a sense, parked for the purposes of transacting an electoral message and, and winning an election. I mean, that's right. I, I think... I mean, on the one hand, I think, you know, as political scientists, when we kind of look at these and we try and understand them, we can be quite um, sneering or critical about slogans. So we can say, oh, look, you know, they're too reductive. And often now they're simplified. But in one sense, for many people who are not engaged in politics, who don't follow politics broadly, then they look for what we call heuristics. They want uh, just signals, uh, simplified messages, which enable them to uh, to engage or understand an overall policy approach. So, of course, get Brexit done was probably the most flimsiest of all the um, of the slogans in in one sense is compared to say Blair's tough on crime tough on the causes of crime but um, but in one sense people but it spoke to this huge fatigue that was in the electorate that, didn't it? I mean that's right and I think it crystallized and it, that. that's right and I think there was an extraordinary amount of um, kind of frustration that this has been going on for three years and Johnson was able to say or kind of give a strong message say well look if you vote for me we will try and end this um, in this kind of misery. And in one sense, it's a slightly false promise because um, the very tough work now about uh, trying to come together with a, a trade agreement with the European Union begins. And the European Union have said you know, uh, already that they don't think it can be done within 12 months. Uh, and something like a kind of hard Brexit still exists in the sense that if there isn't a significant agreement in place by the end of the year, then in one sense, Britain reverts back to WTO rules and the kind of trades, the tariffs and so on, which, which will kick in there, which actually could be kind of quite damaging 
for the highly damaging. That's effectively no deal. Well, that's right. And so, which is why it's uh, it's kind of very interesting to see where they're and and. Boris Johnson's first sort of salvo now is that he recently, he just made a, a speech where he's trying to talk about what he's going to do next. And he's being incredibly bullish in that speech to the European Union, very hardline. So he said to them that in the areas of competition policy, subsidies, social protection and the environment, these are big areas that basically uh, he doesn't want the UK to be beholden by European uh, Union rules. So he, on one hand, wants access to the single market in these areas, but in big areas which uh, which are affected by them, he's saying, look, we're not going to do this. And um, a lot of people are saying, well, look, this is just kind of grandstanding. This is just kind of posturing. Um, but it's a kind of it's a very hard line approach to to kind of uh, to begin uh, to begin what will be incredibly complex um, kind of trade agreements. And I think the the point is being made is that. Britain's looking for something like an Australia or a sort of Canadian-style uh, trade agreement with the European Union, but the Canadian agreement took something like seven years uh, to work through, and, and Johnson's uh, got well less now than twelve months to try and get all that signed off. So it, it just remains, um, you know, bamboozling the amount of work that needs to be done. What did you think about the way the uh, Johnson government, the Boris Johnson administ- administration, uh, handled the actual? date, you know, the 31st of January, uh, there was talk about getting, you know, putting money together, crowdsourcing, I think they were talking about to uh, get Big Ben to bong to mark the occasion. And uh, there've been various other other uh, things that were discussed. But in the end, I think it was a bit bit more low key. But that's, that's right. It was, it was slightly more low key. And I think, I mean, there had been other things. The other thing was, of course, was the centenary, or not centenary, the, the 50p coin. Uh, yes. The the com- commemorative uh, coin uh, which is going through it, which costs an extraordinary amount of money for the British Mint uh, to kind of produce. And, uh, and in fact, the, the money needed for the, for the, for Big Ben to, to make the bongs with games a significant amount of money. And people were just making the point, well, you know, the British economy's not doing, uh, doing so brilliantly or public services are, you know, why are we paying for all these sorts of things? And I think that, um, I think Johnson, in one sense, wanted to had to probably have a slightly uh, sort of lower key, sort of more muted kind of celebration. And part of that, I think, is driven by rail politic of knowing that that um, that, that there's a that there's a the, the Brexit kind of coalition is is kind of quite wide across different kind of communities. And it's very it's just it's uh, Britain, I think, is is quite is really polarised uh, around this. Um, and I feel that um, and and so in one sense. Johnson's at risk of alienating uh, quite a wide part of the kind of community um, uh, if he'd gone for you know very sort of significant sort of flag waving kind of celebrations, which in the end he, he kind of he didn't do. So yeah, there's this sort of this kind of interesting kind of moment about about how you mark this and, and what this means. But it was certainly a significant uh, moment in British political history. One wonders whether it's also tempered by the sorts of things you've been talking about, the recognition that a lot of many, many, many difficulties lie ahead here uh, and that uh, you know, the, the idea is one thing to celebrate, but uh, this could go south in a million ways. Yeah, and it's, it's I mean, it's worth just flagging a couple of things where I think things the two interesting places go. The first is the question of, of devolution and the question about the future of Northern Ireland uh, and in terms of what that means. And, of course, a lot of the Brexit debate in the UK had been uh, swamped with discussions about the hard border and about you know if borders, checks had gone back up. And, of course, 
with the sort of customs union border in the, in the sea, um, there will be some sort of custom checks. So there's this kind of wider question about um, what uh, the relationship that Northern Ireland have will, will be with Europe at the end of this kind of transition period and how that kind of plays out. And then the other area, of course, that's certainly worth flagging is about Scotland and about Scottish independence. So uh, Nicola Sturgeon, who's the leader of the Scottish National Party, uh, they have the, the clear majority in the Scottish Parliament, are clamouring for another referendum on Scottish independence because they were, they're arguing that by default, Scotland should be out because something like 55% of Scots voted to remain within the European Union, 45% didn't, and uh, Sturgeon's kind of actively pushing, is locked in a sort of constitutional um, uh, kind of lock at the moment, or sense of paralysis saying, well, look, Scotland um, should become independent and stay within the European Union. And Donald Tusk again had made overture saying, well, look, we would welcome uh, Scotland into the European Union. So there's this wider question about uh, devolution and the makeup of the United Kingdom is, again, a really open question now to, to see how this kind of uh, plays out. And there's a great deal of uncertainty about uh, about how well Johnson, the degree to which he can hold the union together. And in Northern Ireland, he's he certainly upsets the um, the DUP, the Democratic Ulster Union Party, by reneging on one of his kind of early deals with them. So it's it's a it's an incredibly fraught situation internally at home for for Boris Johnson in terms of trying to manage these kind of ongoing headaches, which is probably another reason why you know some of the celebrations are muted. It's kind of well, look now now you know do you have some degree of buyer's remorse really? Mm. We've talked a bit about Boris's John, Boris Johnson's eccentricity. Of course, uh, his chief advisor Dominique Cummings is uh, well known as the architect of the Leave referendum campaign and uh, also known as a, a very eccentric figure in his own right. He's been um, looking for uh, staff for the government, of looking for kind of um, you know unorthodox people to join the government. What does that tell us about? The uh, the government under Boris Johnson. Cummings is really was one of those interesting kind of figures. He's often sort of portrayed to a certain extent, rightly, as a sort of shadowy Machiavellian sort of uh, advisor. Um, and I mean, in, like, in politics, we often look for these kind of stories, don't we? I think with uh, you know, Tony Abbott and Peter yeah. Bradley, there was always you know, these these kind of relationships between the, the influence of this. Cummings is particularly divisive. Uh, kind of uh, figure. He was doorstopped by a journalist on the night of uh, Brexit leaving date. And he was particularly uh, grumpy and, and not very gracious about being uh, questioned about uh, about what next. I mean, Cummings is a kind of key player because uh, for someone like him and those who really support a hard Brexit, they're seeing, they see a real opportunity to bring to remake it and its political economy, particularly in terms of areas like the financial services sector and to kind of uh, you know remake part uh, remake the kind of Britain. So the his it's interesting too that I think that you know his job ad which you know achieved quite a lot of media attention. He's looking for these uh, bright ideas of quite um, is that I think he he comes from a sort of radical uh, conservative kind of tradition and and in that sense I think he's looking to attract people to to. To help radically remake uh, kind of uh, the British kind of political system, so of course he's looking for for young people with bright ideas um, who might well sort of sign up to to that sort of uh, kind of vision. Um, so it's an interesting opportunity for someone out there who who might want to. 
play a part of it. But but again, I'd say there's, a, there's an interesting issue here about Cummings. Cummings is not widely liked, I would say, between the whole of the, the British Conservative Party. And there's certainly like a moderate uh, wing, a wet wing, as we would call it, of the British Conservatives, uh, who see Cummings as having an undue and really unhelpful influence, uh, particularly on this. And the the difficulty will be is that the British public sector, now the public service, uh, will have a huge task in trying to begin uh, sorting out some of these negotiations and Cummings will be looking for some uh, radical solutions or movement on some of them and might well be frustrated um, that the institutional kind of lag doesn't ena- enable him to do this. Uh, so he might well need more than just a, a few bright uh, 20-year-olds in the office to to help uh, push this kind of new agenda through for the Johnson government. Yes, well, that's going to be a fascinating element to watch of this whole experiment. Uh, indeed, the uh, the sort of maturing and shaping of Boris Johnson's government and where all of these multiple problems will go. Rob Manwaring, thanks so much for joining us on this second serve of Democracy Sausage. Yeah, absolute pleasure. And that's it for Democracy Sausage Extra. We'll be back with the normal Democracy Sausage on Tuesday of next week. 